Welcome to another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer. Born and raised in New York City's Lower East Side, composer, violinist, and educator Jesse Montgomery is currently the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Mead Composer-in-Residence. The Chicago Sinfonietta commissioned her to write Coincident Dances back in 2017, and the work is scored for strings, winds, brass, timpani, and several other percussion instruments from different cultural backgrounds. Montgomery says the piece is inspired by the experience of walking down the streets of New York and simultaneously hearing different types of music. And she shares that in this work, the orchestra takes on the role of DJ of a multicultural dance track. Montgomery's compositional style connects what we know as traditional classical music with concepts of improvisation, vernacular music, language, and social justice. She says that her music fuses many different sound worlds, English consort, samba, mbira dance music from Ghana, swing, and techno. Textures play a very important role in this piece. Montgomery builds momentum and excitement by gradually adding layer after layer of sound. Coincident Dances begins with a bass solo, and Montgomery's score instructs the bass to play freely, even to play around the conductor's beats. We then hear the first full orchestral phrase, a sighing minor melody. Here's a bit of the bass solo and that minor theme. The bass solo briefly returns, and a few short measures of strings usher in bass clarinet with accompaniment marked in the tempo of groove. Rhythm is paramount here. Even though it swings, the violins have very specific accents written over certain beats, and those accents are not consistent measure to measure. This is also when we're introduced to Montgomery's magical use of percussion, including snare and cymbal. The winds sing out onto the street. section begins to build layers of sound. It starts with a flute solo, followed by oboe and clarinet phrases interrupted by kashishi, which are African basket shakers that kind of sound like maracas, also wood blocks, and a shaker. Sweeping wind phrases welcome in a new sonic landscape, perhaps a new city block. 
This section surges ahead, carried by bass drum, snare, tambourine, xylophone, and brass, with a particularly rocking trombone and tuba part. Here's that section. only build in intensity from here. Strings fuel the music with shouts from hi-hat, snare, and timbales scattered in the score in a way that sounds almost improvisational. This section returns near the end, so I'll skip playing it for now. After flurries of winds, a trumpet solo and dance music arrive. Montgomery instructs the trumpet to slide up to its highest possible note, leading into brass and bass drum grooves. the dance section, new layers begin to build again with the same thrilling punctuations of various percussion instruments. There are moments of triangle, kashishi, tom-toms, and timpani. Then comes a section of total unison across instruments that returns to the previously uttered string theme, complete with that rocking tuba part. This is the final build of the piece as the strings sing their song over and over again with exclamations from percussion. I didn't play this when it made its earlier appearance, but here it is now. This isn't just a stroll down a New York City block. This is the experience of rhythms, colors, and cultures stirring your soul.
the music dissolves down again into flustered winds that fade into silence. For now, the sonic exploration of this neighborhood ends, but there will always be more city blocks to traverse and more layers to take in. Poet Konstantin Balmont, a friend of Prokofiev and to whom Prokofiev dedicated this concerto, wrote a sonnet about the third piano concerto. Here are a few lines. A keyboard of words plays with sparkling fires that suddenly dart out with flaming tongues. Prokofiev, music and youth in bloom, in you the orchestra craves bright summer, and mighty Scythian strikes the sun's great drum. Prokofiev certainly made a name for himself with his first two piano concertos, but it was his third, his best known, that gave the world new insight into his talent. The concerto had its world premiere in December of 1921 with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Frederick Stock. This makes 2021 the 100th anniversary of the concerto's premiere. The premiere was successful, but Prokofiev didn't feel it was an immediate smashing success. He wrote to his friend in Chicago that when he played the concerto in London and Paris, critics had called him a genius. He had been called a genius by a Chicago writer after he performed his first concerto with the CSO in what has since become my favorite news headline, Russian Genius Plays Weird Harmonies. Prokofiev wrote this work between 1917 and 21, but many of its themes had been sketched before then. His wife reported that he finished composing the concerto on an old upright piano. This concerto also is notable in that it was the first work Prokofiev ever recorded. That was in 1932. This is the only concerto of his six that follows a traditional three-movement structure, similar to more classic concertos. Overall, the orchestration is simple and clean, with muted strings, exposed woodwind solos, and decorative solo piano writing. It's fiendishly difficult to play, just like the rest of Prokofiev's piano concertos. And at one point, Russian composer Nikolai Miaskovsky actually told Prokofiev, no one apart from you will be able to play it. The concerto opens slowly, with a solo clarinet that is soon joined by another clarinet, violins, and flute, to introduce one of the main themes. There is a huge tempo shift, and the piano then announces itself in true Prokofiev fashion, a devilishly quick passage full of scales. This piano opening is also a theme that will become even faster and more elaborate later on.
After some galloping rhythms, we hear a new section led by piano, woodwinds, and percussion. This is often characterized as folk-like, but its harmonic treatments are distinctly Prokofiev, particularly when it expands back into fast scalar figures in the solo part. Next, an unsettling sounding dance theme leads back into the sweet opening string melody from the movement's beginning. This dance theme will return later in the movement as well. Prokofiev moves into a sparkling, dreamy section for piano built off of that sweet melody. It's a section that's both virtuosic and atmospheric. Prokofiev continues to recycle his themes in his movement, and the main piano theme can be heard one final time in the piano and orchestra as it runs to a close. movement's structure is a theme and five variations. The orchestra introduces it right away. Prokofiev described the first variation in the following statement. The piano treats the opening of the theme in quasi-sentimental fashion and resolves into a chain of trills as the orchestra repeats the closing phrase. Here's some of that first variation.
Prokofiev wrote the second and third variations in the tempo of Allegro and said that he wrote brilliant figures for the piano in both, while snatches of the theme are introduced here and there in the orchestra. You'll hear bits of the theme in the strings and brass near the beginning of this excerpt. Here are some of the second variation. skip past the third variation for the sake of time, but the fourth returns to a slower tempo of Andante, and the piano and orchestra converse quietly as they explore the theme. Prokofiev marks the horns to play delicatissimo, and the strings wear their mutes. The final variation is energetic, and Prokofiev wrote it so that it leads immediately into a reiteration of the theme by the orchestra. Here's just a taste of the fifth variation. In this movement, Prokofiev's use of piano sound and color, the sheer sound of the instrument interacting with the orchestra and contrasting the ensemble's colors, truly shines. The final movement returns to dazzling, speedy passages for the soloist. Two bassoons introduce the theme with the support of plucking strings, and then the piano has a try at it. Cascading scales from piano and various instruments in the orchestra give every single phrase the feeling of a grand flourish. A more plaintive section comes, which marks the most romantic-sounding part of the concerto heard thus far. The piano solo is pensive and wandering, with a slow burn that opens up to lyrical string phrases. At times, the piano almost sounds like a jazz musician improvising at the keyboard.
the concerto closes with one more repeat of the main theme that's explored in almost fugal nature, followed by brilliant scalar figures from piano to bring the piece to a thrilling end. Here are some of those scalar figures. concert review came close to extolling Prokofiev's third piano concerto the way his poet friend did, but the composer's third piano concerto was a success in America. Schubert took much inspiration from the symphonies of Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. In Schubert's eighth symphony, however, he made his own immortal mark on the symphonic genre. Schubert's eighth also illustrates his continued evolution into more romantic writing. For one, the orchestration is larger. This is one of the symphonies in which Schubert expanded the role of the brass section. Schubert also highlighted each individual instrument's strengths and coloristic purpose, and this was a hallmark of romantic orchestral writing, really taking advantage of a fuller, more colorful textural landscape. It's important to at least mention the 19th century elephant in the room. Why didn't Schubert finish this symphony? The definitive answer is that no one knows. It wasn't that he died in the middle of writing it. He didn't die until six years later. He also had not tired of writing great orchestral music. He went on to write another full symphony and sketches for a variety of other orchestral works. No one misplaced or lost any other movements either. We know for sure that beyond a bit of a third movement, Schubert did not finish this work. He also did not share his unfinished symphony with the public during his lifetime. Instead, he gave it to a friend, Josef Hüttenbrenner, to pass on to Josef's older brother, Anselm, also Schubert's friend. The music was supposed to serve as a token of thanks for securing Schubert an honorary membership in the Steiermärkische Musikverein. Josef and Anselm kept the score for many years, and it was not until 1865 that Johann Herbeck, conductor of the Vienna Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde Orchestra, conducted the first performance of the work in Vienna. The symphony is just two movements, though Schubert did write some of a third movement, as I said before, a scherzo. You'll hear plentiful repetition of themes, but the melodies in this symphony are so beautiful, you will not mind hearing them again and again. In the first movement, marked Allegro Moderato, Schubert displays his nimble ability to change keys. Some of these key changes come in the form of declamatory chords, which serve as pillars throughout the movement. The symphony begins with a bass and cello theme that's followed by a pianissimo violin entrance. Momentum builds quickly with the help of oboe and clarinet. This opening section will also return.
another theme upon which the movement is built then begins in the cellos, and it's soon passed on to the violins. This new theme isn't in a key that's directly related to the movement's overall key of B minor, but Schubert uses one of those aforementioned declamatory chords as a pivot point to get to G major. Here's the thundering chord that leads directly into a new section in G major, the movement's main theme. Before that violin phrase can resolve, however, Schubert uses another declamatory chord to move back into minor. The main cello melody and the exclamatory chords take their turns, and then Schubert returns to the music from the very beginning of the symphony, that brooding cello and bass phrase. It now serves as the foundation for the orchestra's own storm. This storm uses that cello and bass phrase as its lightning. You'll hear it right away in this excerpt. leads us back to the symphony's beginning again, this time to that chug-along string figure and the oboe clarinet duet. You would think the juxtaposition between these more declamatory chords and a lyrical melody would sound odd, but the intensity and the intention of each is equal, just in different ways. The cello and bass introduction returns for the last time, this time played by many other instruments that eventually join together to bring things to a close back in B minor. The second and final movement takes the form of two themes, we'll call them A and B, that trade-off. The full pattern is A-B-A-B-A. -A -A. Horns, strings, and bassoon play the opening theme.
This melody and movement takes its time. It's unhurried and well-rounded out by bass. Stately staccato chords with a wind and brass chorale over the top quiet down to welcome back the tender opening theme. Then, solo clarinet introduces the movement's other main theme over syncopated accompaniment. The oboe sings this same flowing theme, which is echoed by flute and leads into an angsty section filled with timpani strokes. This contrapuntal section takes that sweet lyrical melody we heard on clarinet and makes it feverish. Here's the orchestra's version of the clarinet theme. Just as they served as leaders in the first movement, the cellos and basses bring the temperature back down and the sweet theme returns in oboe and clarinet again. But the storm isn't over. It's incredible how Schubert is able to reinvent such a lovely melody and make it into thunder and lightning. Then to take us back to more gentle lyricism in just a matter of a few measures. Here's an example of this when the storm returns and recedes this time taking us back to the opening of the movement. The final pages of this movement are subdued. The violins play long, relaxed, descending phrases, and those cellos and basses return as a bookend, just as they began the symphony. Some have suggested trying to finish the third movement that Schubert had just barely started, and even to add a fourth, informed by Schubert's musical style and output. But the first two movements are extraordinary enough to stand on their own.
This has been another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer.